0: If you have a Bible with you today, or you're following along on a phone on your bulletin, go ahead, open up to Acts chapter 1. That's what we're going to look at today as we talk about the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, as a Christian my whole life, all 42 years of my life, I've heard this account in Scripture probably 42 times, but this time as I was reading it, something struck me about it this idea or this story of Jesus rising up into heaven, covered with clouds, and the very first thing that came to my mind is, I wonder what somebody who is void of faith, an agnostic or an atheist, I wonder how they look at a scripture like this. What do they think about the ascension? Because admittedly, In our culture, our scientifically based society, it is difficult to wrap our head around a miracle like the resurrection and a supernatural event like the ascension of Jesus Christ. And it brought to my mind a quote by a famous atheist by the name of Richard Dawkins. This is how he describes people of faith. He writes, Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think, and evaluate evidence, faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps of, the lack of evidence. Faith is perhaps because of, I'm sorry, uh, belief in spite of, even perhaps of, the lack of evidence. Now, Richard Dawkins is, of course, a provocateur. He's trying to goat us as Christians into an argument, but he does speak for many people, especially the academically elite, who believe that this is hogwash, this thing called the ascension. But there's nothing new under the sun, and in fact, for centuries, there's been people outside of our modern-day academically elite who believe the same thing. I want to show you some graffiti from 200 A.D., this was found on the residence of a Roman citizen by the name of Alexapanos, sorry. And Alexapanos was a Christian, and outside his door one day, he finds a picture, description of himself worshiping a figure on the cross, except it's not Jesus. It's a, to use the King James Version, jackass. Underneath this picture are the words, Alex Amanos worships his God. Whether we live in our culture here today, modern America, or in the centuries, the third century, 200 AD, there's always been people who have not believed in the resurrection. There's always been people who have criticized and antagonized those who do believe in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And today what we're gonna look at, we're gonna engage our brains because when we look biblically, when we look theologically at what the ascension means for us, there's two things we'll discover Number one, the ascension means that despite Jesus leaving us and leaving this earth, we can actually grow stronger in our faith relationship with the Father. And number two, we have this incredible power, the Holy Spirit given to us to then go and live God's mission in this world today. So let's start with number one, how God strengthens our relationship by Jesus coming home to the Father. Now, In verse 3, if you're following along, there is something for us to ponder. It says that he presented himself, Jesus presented himself alive to the disciples after suffering many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, Luke is an apologist. He's writing an apologetical letter to his friend Theophilus, who, like many people today, wrestle with, struggled with whether or not the resurrection, whether or not the ascension was true. And he's making a point here that lasts through all generations. Yes, there's people now who don't believe, wrestle with doubt. But there were people back then who also wrestled with unbelief, wrestled with doubt. And just because they were a primitive culture doesn't mean that they just accepted this blindly. We know this because even Jesus' own disciples wrestled with whether or not the resurrection actually happened. Matthew 28, 17. This is Matthew's account of the ascension. He writes this. When the disciples saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. His own disciples, after 40 days of seeing Jesus, eating with Jesus, drinking with Jesus, even his own disciples wrestled with what in the world was going on with this resurrection. But then... The key for us to understand when this thing started to click for the disciples, for the apostles, Jesus is very clear, don't do anything until you receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, they were staying with him, they were eating with Jesus. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then we know that the Holy Spirit was a powerful force. 3,000 added to the believer's number on Pentecost. We'll look at that in a couple weeks. And with great power, the Christian church grew, and with great intellectual power, the apostles started to figure out what the real purpose of the kingdom of God was all about, what the real purpose of Jesus, the real mission of Jesus was all about. See, they're still confused before the Holy Spirit shows up. In verse 6... They come together and they ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What they're asking is really selfish. Jesus, now are you gonna make Israel the great nation that it once was? Now will you be and show up and be our personal savior and Messiah? They weren't looking globally. The disciples were looking very locally. They wanted a personal Messiah. Then the Holy Spirit shows up they remember John 3, 16, for God so loved the what? The world that he sent his one and only son that whoever should believe in him shall have eternal life. See, Jesus didn't come for a specific group of people. He came for the whole world. He was to be a global Messiah. And then John, as he is filled with the Holy Spirit, he writes for us in 1 John chapter 2, really explains why jesus had to then go to the father it says this my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous now I know you know this. If you're a Christian in here today, you know what I'm about to say on some level. You know that I'm gonna say that you are a sinner and that every day you sin and that every day you need to ask for forgiveness. That is true. But let's think about what John is actually saying here. This word advocate, we could understand that something like this. Jesus is saying, modern context, that he's our lawyer. He's our great criminal defense attorney. And what he does, he goes to the Father on our behalf. It goes something like this. He says, Dad, yeah, son, Micah sinned again today. Oh, I know, says the father. But then Jesus says, Dad, you can't punish Micah for his sin because you've already punished me, and you can't punish two people for one sin. See, Jesus stands in the gap for us he took the punishment that we deserve to pay, and He daily, by the minute, by the, by the week, by the month, by the year, He stands in our defense. And when the Heavenly Father sees a sin taking place, He doesn't see you or pin it to you because it's already been pinned to Jesus on the cross. Now, very practically speaking for us today, what does that mean? Well, it means that if you came into this church if you're watching at home online and you're racked with guilt, there's something in your conscience that you can't shake and you can't forgive yourself for, you have an advocate that this moment is standing in your place, appealing to the Father, and that punishment is no longer on you if you have confessed your sin, if you've repented. Instead, all the Father sees is Jesus risen and on the throne. And you can be freed of your shame and your guilt. It's powerful. Then number two, it means that for us today, there's some, something to do with the location of where Jesus is right now. Why did he go into heaven? Well, Paul unpacks this for us in Ephesians, and Paul writes this, that the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12 says this is the heavenly throne far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, the age when Paul's writing, but also in the one to come. That's for us today, right now. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things for the church. So what does that mean for us? Again, practically speaking, number one, it means we don't have to fear death. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He conquered death. What that means for us today is that, yes, we know our body's going to die, but we need not fear it because Jesus is on the throne. He is reigning, and he has a place preserved for us. Number two, what are some things that perhaps you struggle with in your own faith life with doubt and a lack of trust? Do you struggle trusting God with your finances relationships with your health. Well, again, we can look to this verse and we look at the place in which Jesus ascended to the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. And the text tells us that he is far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present, but also in the age to come. What that means is by God's grace, you can give him those things that you struggle with trusting him with because his feet, all things are underneath his very feet. He is in control and he's watching and he cares for you from the throne. And lastly, number three, we can get rid of and let go of our fear of judgment. You understand how judgmental our culture is right now? We live in the most finger-pointing society I have ever seen in my entire life. We get judged for the way we look. We get judged for the things we say. We get judged for the things we believe. We even get judged for things we wrote in Twitter in the ninth grade. We are such a judgmental society, and yet, according to this verse, because of where Jesus is, where he ascended to, we can be free of the fear of judgment because the only judgment that matters is the judgment of the one who reigns on the throne and he looks down upon you and he sees his beautiful creation, sons and daughters of the king. See, the ascension means for us a strengthened relationship with God because of the things Jesus is doing on our behalf in the rule and reign of heaven. That's number one. But number two, It says here in our text that we are going to be given great power. Great power by the Holy Spirit to then go and live God's mission in this world. Well, how does that happen? Because I don't know if you're like me. When I read this verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I get tempted to look at the book of Acts, to look at what we see in the epistles, and to believe that maybe that power was just for that particular group of people, the first century Christians and apostles. Because we see these great miracles. I mean, think of the miracles of Peter and Paul raising people from the dead. There's this incredible encounter where angels show up and free Paul from prison. The faith, the courage of Stephen, the very first martyr who looked with great courage at the face of death as he's being stoned. And he sees the glory of God. And we go, well, that's, that's great for them, But if I had that kind of power, man, then I would believe. If I could have that kind of power, I would do great miracles too. And yes, if we all did, man, the world would be changed so much. And yet, you do know that by 90 AD, all those apostles, all those disciples who had that great power were dead. They were gone. And so we have to ask ourselves a question this morning. If it was all on them, how has the Christian church grown from 120 scared disciples in an upper room to the most populous religion and faith-based group on the entire planet? How has that happened if the Holy Spirit is not active in all of our lives collectively with great power? Well, to help us with this, I want to turn to a very unlikely source of help and motivation. It's an atheist sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and at least at the time when he wrote this book, he was an atheist. He denounces miracles in this book. He talks over and over how there's no such thing as miracles, and he attempts to show us through social science how the Christian church developed over time and became the most dominant religion in the world. But in so doing, he makes a couple of very interesting points. Number one, he concedes, he admits that the Christian gospel radically changed the world. For example, he talks about how because of the gospel, women were empowered for the first time in the history of civilization, being made equal in marriage and in the household and in religious um, rights within the church. He talks about how Christians, because of the gospel, ended the horrible practice of infanticide, where it was very, very common for Roman citizens if they had a female child to kill the child or a deformed male child to kill the child how the Christians stood up and fought against abortion, which killed mother and child, how the Christians radically transformed the world by caring for the poor and the widows and the orphans. He concedes all those things. But what's most incredible about the research that Stark does is very applicable to us today in our time because he also points out how the Christians showed incredible mercy during time of two great pandemics. It was the 2nd and 3rd century AD, and by the end of the second pandemic, it's estimated that over half the Roman population had died to this pandemic. And because Romans at those times, the doctors had no idea about infectious diseases, they had no way to cure it, so their best advice to people was, if you could, flee from the cities. Go and hide from the pandemic until it blows over. And so what happened is the doctors fled The nurses fled, the leaders of the cities fled, the elite, the wealthy citizens fled because they could, but it left everybody else, the poor and the middle class, to fend for themselves, and the result of that was even more dramatic because more people died of being not cared for, of being forgotten than did of the actual disease because there was no one to nurse them back to health except for one group of people. It's a well-documented fact in history that because Christians did not fear death, because Christians knew that they were called to be merciful because they themselves have experienced the mercy of Christ, the Christians stayed behind. It was Christians who nursed people back to health. It was Christians who held the hand of their dying neighbors so that they could die with dignity. And it was Christians who, in the face of tremendous difficulty and their own personal death, stayed to show the love of Christ to those who were suffering through this pandemic. And in 251 AD, a pastor who survived it, he's the Bishop of Alexandria, he wrote this on Easter Sunday. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Other people would not think this a time for a festival, but far from being a time of distress, it was a time of unimaginable joy. Joy. Because the power of the Holy Spirit had overwhelmed their hearts and they were able to, outside of themselves, go and give themselves as a sacrifice for other people. Now as we close, what does this mean? Well, I talked about Richard Dawkins at the beginning of this message, how he says you have to check your brain at the door if you're a person of faith and just accept without evidence the things that we see in this world that can't be explained. Now, in some sense, he is right. He is true. As Christians, we are in many ways called to check our brain at the door when it comes to this culture. Because the Bible does have for us things that don't make sense to many people in our culture, the way we treat our family and friends, the way we deal with sexuality, the way we treat our bodies. That is radically different. But on the other hand, he's not being very true to himself. He's being rather hypocritical. I want to show you another quote of his from a book called The selfish gene, one of his first books. He writes, much as we might want to believe otherwise, universal love and welfare of the species as a whole are concepts which simply do not make evolutionary sense. Do you see what he's saying? Despite the fact that we see universal love in our society, despite the fact that we see people caring for other people's welfare, that shouldn't happen in evolutionary theory and evolutionary biology it doesn't make sense he's checking his brain at the door when it comes to this and he concludes therefore let us try and teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish now you know what I say to Richard Dawkins today and anybody else who's in here and wrestling with the same thing welcome to the family of faith Welcome to the family of faith because there is a big difference here, worldviews speaking. What Christianity teaches, radically different from every other worldview, is that we are, yes, born selfish, selfish and we are born sinful, but we have an advocate who sits on the throne, who rules on high, who did something about our selfishness and not from anything that we can muster up inside our heart. But by a pure gift of grace and the power of the Holy Spirit overcomes our heart and gives to us this power that we then share with the world selflessly and for the sake of the one who rules on high. Today, as we leave this place, may we be those people trusting in the rule and the reign of the one who's on the throne and selfishly giving of ourselves so that we can share the hope and the love of Jesus Christ with our broken and hurting world. Amen? Amen.